Hello again. Another reminder that the Athletic Football Podcast will be back on Monday the 13th of June. But in the meantime, here is another episode from our recent series, The Moment, with Kelly Cates and Jeff Thomas. Back in 2016, the former Spurs, Liverpool and England midfielder Paul Stewart made the decision to open up about the sexual abuse he suffered from a youth team coach when he was a young footballer. Here he tells Kelly and Jeff about that horrific experience, how it impacted upon his life and how he's trying to prevent it happening again. A warning before you begin listening. This episode contains detailed discussion of child sexual abuse and trauma. If you're a victim of sexual abuse or have been affected by it and would like to talk to someone confidentially, you can call Childline on 0808 800 5000. The Athletic. Can you remember the one moment that changed your life forever? The moment that put everything in perspective. I'm Kelly Cates. And I'm Jeff Thomas. And in this series, we're sharing the stories of sports people who've experienced and overcome moments of adversity. This is The Moment. In 2003, after a 20-year career in football, playing for the likes of Crystal Palace, Wolves and England, I was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukaemia. I was given just three months to live. But after two years of treatment and a stem cell transplant, I overcame the disease. Our guests will share how their lives have been shaped by times of adversity and how those experiences have made them the people they are today. I wanted to speak to fellow sports people to find out how, like me, they overcame these moments. In this episode... I used to go and listen to it for days and weeks on end on drug-fueled binges and, and drink and, you know... I lost my wife in September, you know, um, and I'd been with her 33 years. I never even got to tell her I loved her. Paul Stewart enjoyed much success as a professional footballer, scoring in the 1991 FA Cup final at Wembley as Spurs won the trophy and going on to play for Liverpool and England. But off the pitch, Paul was living in a nightmare. In November 2016, he opened up about the years of sexual abuse he suffered at the hands of his youth coach. In the years since, Paul's been dealing with the aftermath of the abuse that haunted him for decades and has been using his experience to help the many people who've suffered similarly appalling treatment. Paul, thanks so much for for joining us. And we're going to talk about your moment as the moment when you decided to go public with the, the sexual abuse that, that you endured. But before we, we get to that point, I just want to get um, a picture of you as a young kid, that that kind of, that version of yourself, that seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old that that loved football. And I think your mum described you as a, a real live wire. Yeah, I mean, Kelly, I, I often say I was the most happy-go-lucky child you'd ever wish to meet. Always up for a joke with my cousins and the lads from the estate and my brothers. You know, as my mum says, I used to sing songs for her and record them. And I didn't have a care in the world. And, and I had this dream, just the one dream of becoming a professional footballer. And it wasn't just me. Uh, from where I was from, everybody. Um, you were being born in Manchester, you were red or blue. I used to emulate my idols. Uh, when we played on the on the grass or or where, wherever there was a spare bit of land, we'd play football. 
But as I say, I, I, I was just, you know, I couldn't have been happier, despite the background that I came from. You know, it was I was born on a council estate and we weren't afforded the luxuries of life. But what we didn't know, we didn't really want for, you know, so we were just enjoying uh, life as it was. Uh, and then things changed. Yeah, and, and your mum really sort of has powerfully described that that change in you. Talk to us about the events that, that brought on that change in you. Quite simply, I was playing for my uh, school team and there was a coach um, walking up and down the touchline. I actually knew of the team that he, he was coaching. There were two teams in Manchester, actually, Kelly. Um, there was the one that I joined, which was Nova Juniors, with my coach. And the other one, believe it or not, was White Hill. And the coach there was the notorious uh, paedophile Barry Burnell. And we were both teams vying for for most of the trophies and, and beating teams out of sight. I mean, the team that I played for, I think about five or six of them went on to play professional football. And two of us ended up representing England, myself and David Barsley. So, you know, we had such a great team. They went on exotic trips as well. And when I talk about exotic trips in 1975, the thought of going to America and Ireland, you know, I was lucky if I could get go with the family for a week in a caravan to Wales or maybe down to Blackpool for a day, because that's all we could afford. So the thought of that, I was so excited. So when I knew he, that this coach wanted me to join his team, I, I was ever so eager uh, and, and pleaded with my, with my parents, I guess. They were worried about if it would cost anything. That was their main concern, because we, we couldn't afford another strain on the household budget. When he reassured them that it wouldn't cost anything, they allowed me to join. And then within a matter of, of a week, he started coming around the house all the time, bringing gifts. You know, when I talk about what we could ill afford, he was bringing the latest sportswear, the latest football boots. Now, I have two older brothers, and I was lucky to get, you know, the third hand-me-down from, from boots and stuff like that. So, and he was convincing my parents of what a, what a good player I was and how I've got a great chance and how he could help me to, to realise my dream. So from a very early stage, you just, I mean, we know it's grooming now, but back then there was no such word as grooming. Uh, we didn't know what that was like, but he, he, he was just, I guess, in front of my parents, charming. He, he, he convinced them that with his help, I, I'd become a footballer. He was bringing gifts from my parents. He bought, he bought, uh, he bought us our first colour TV, but that escalated into him. He then started picking me up from school. And if he didn't pick me up, he'd be waiting and he'd follow me home. And if I spoke to any of my school colleagues, I'd get in the car and he'd say, what are you talking to them for? You want to be a footballer? You don't talk to people like that. You've got to be dedicated. And I was like, you know, it was quite confusing. And then he started taking a few of the lads out um, during the week. We'd go temping bowling or we'd go, we'd go to the pitches. And he started dropping me off last. There was usually four or five of us. And, and, he would start making sexual innuendo, sexual jokes, asking me how many times I'd masturbated. And it just didn't feel right at the time. And, but he insisted on an answer. So I just used to make things up. And then, of course, about two weeks in, and he was now round at the house every night. He said, look, we need to go and do some extra training, uh, Paul. So you can imagine the parents again thinking, well, this is great for our Paul. You know, this coach is, is going to help him to realise his dream. He's even giving him extra training. He was aligned with a professional football club. 
which was again another plus point to 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 playing for the team and then him doing all this coaching. But unfortunately, the first session of coaching was being driven to a secluded spot close to my home where I was sexually abused for the first time in the in the car. When he finished abusing me, he just leant across and said, "If you tell your mum and dad or your brothers, I'll kill them." Now I was I was just short of eleven years of age, and and you know when somebody of that age, 35, 40, quite imposing, says that to you. You believe them. You believe them. And he also said, you want to become a footballer, this is what you have to do. So then I was I was totally in in confused, isolated. You know, if if every if ever I was showing any affection or engaging with my family, as soon as you got in the car, it was what why why are you doing that? You know, they don't love you. Look how they dress you. Because of course we couldn't afford the luxuries, as I said. So he was totally turning me uh, against my family. I never said anything because I thought, if I tell my dad, my dad will kill him. And I don't want to lose my dad. I don't want my dad to go to prison. If I say anything, my brothers will, they won't get all these gifts, you know, that we can afford. But I think the overriding uh, reason was I, I genuinely thought that he had the power to give and take away the only thing I ever wanted to be. And, and that never waned throughout is to be to become a footballer. So you end up saying nothing. You end up and, and and from the first day that I was I was sexually abused, I was then systematically abused every day of my life uh, for four years. Either physically, I was always sexually abused, but sometimes physically because it it hit me if he thought that I was being um, if I wasn't towing the line with him, if he if he saw me again engaging with my family so I was left in a situation where I didn't feel that I had anywhere to turn so I endured I endured the abuse for them reasons Jimmy was he was he were you his focus was he, you know like Barry Bernardi mentioned you know he had like a stream of, of, of victims were you just purely his focus I was with him 24 7 uh, Jeff I'm not sure whether he abused others in the time that I was with him, but I was his main focus. And, he, and to be honest with me, he got, got me, he, he, he'd done what he set out to do was was groom, not just, and back then, Jeff, you didn't have to just groom parents, you had to groom grandparents and aunties and uncles. And, and what they do then, they, 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 they isolate the individual. And, and I, was that, I was isolated whilst everyone else because in their company, he was like the Pied Piper. He was he was the nicest person you'd ever wish to meet. When I got in the car, he was a complete and utter monster. And, uh, you know, on a couple of occasions, my parents walked in in our house and I was crying because he just abused me. And, you know, when you think there's a glimmer of hope and you think oh, maybe they'll see that something's wrong, he was able to convince them that it, because I was so desperate to be a footballer and I was crying because I thought I wasn't going to make it. And my heart would just sink again. It would just be, it'd just be horrible. And, and you know, when you're, when you grow up like I grew up and, and, and probably yourself and you, you know, he hit me on the arms, hit me on the legs. He used to hit me in the throat, but you used to have bruises on your arms and legs from, from going out and, and, and playing with the lads when you did. So there was no reason for, for my parents to suggest there was anything happening. He used to bend my fingers back uh, and stuff like that to, to hurt me, but there was no visible signs from it apart from the odd bruise, which, again, you could have got from school or you could have got 
playing in a game. So to, to, to I mean, he got so entrenched in the family. He was living, he was living at our house, uh, staying in my bedroom. So, you know, there, there wasn't an escape for me at any time. Even Christmas days and birthdays, he was around the house. Um, Jeff and I had to endure the abuse. So there was just no escape in it. But yeah, I was, I was, I was his focus 24-7. So you say you had to sort of deal with that, but how did you separate living a, like a normal kid's life? Because everybody else would have had that perception that you was happy and you was doing well with football, but there's horrendous things going. Yeah, I think, I, I think, I mean, about a year in, I, I, you know, as Kelly asked me about, you know, prior to the abuse, I was this happy-go-lucky kid. About a year into the abuse, Jeff, I, I fell silent. I didn't speak to anyone. I wouldn't go anywhere with my parents. And I was just in fear of, of if I said the wrong thing, then I know the implications when I got in the car. I knew what was going to happen to me. So if somebody asked me a question, I'd just give them a direct answer. No more, no less. I would never engage and start a conversation. And again, I guess back then that was a cry for help, but he used to convince my parents that it was because I was so desperate to be a footballer mm. and that, you know, they fell for it. And I know it's hard to believe, but but these people are very, very clever individuals. You know, they, they, they know exactly. They're very calculating in how and the way that they do it. And he just used to convince them that, you know, uh, he was going to help me uh, realise my dream. So... I did change in personality, you know, my demeanour changed, but I, it's called the uh, child accommodation syndrome, you know, that, that's what we call it when you're, you, you actually accommodate the abuser because you don't want to upset the family, you know, when I say to you about the presents that were being given and, and, and everything that he was doing for the family and then how they thought of him, so... I just just enjoyed it, and to be honest with you, my 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 safe haven was was on the football pitch. You know, for that sixty minutes that we used to play, I knew that I couldn't be harmed. I knew that no one could hurt me. Whilst the abuse was happening, I used to be able to take myself away and pretend I was playing at Old Trafford or I was playing at Wembley, and that was my way of of dealing with the abuse. And that's that that's how I I got through it. And Paul, as a, as a kid of, of not yet 11, you haven't really started to form an adult view of the world. So you think the world of football is going to be like this. And then someone comes along and tells you, no, 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 in order to get on, this is what needs to happen. You're suffering and your parents see it. And this same person says, no, 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 that's not, not what's happening. You're living one version of a life and being told that your life is different from that. How do you even start to, to process that? The fact that your trauma is being turned into something else by your abuser. I didn't process it, Kelly. That's, that, that's the problem. I accommodated it. The one thing that never waned in all this was my desire to be a footballer. Even though this abuse was happening to me, I still was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a footballer no matter what. And... Again, I, you know, just I don't want to repeat myself, but you genuinely think these people have the power to take that away from you, that opportunity away from you. And that would have been probably for me at that time more devastating than the abuse that I was enjoying. And so when did it did it come to an end, Paul? And how did it did it come to an end? Well, I was I was um I was getting physically stronger. It was just before my 15th birthday and his MO was he used to reach across in the car and touch me this particular day. 
I'd just had enough. You know, I couldn't take any more, you know. It, it, it just wasn't worth it for me. You know, my mind, I was confused. I was, you know, I was ostracised at school because I wouldn't talk to anyone because of the fear that if he saw me, so I couldn't have any friends. And I just, I just totally had enough. So I pushed him away and just opened the car door where they slammed the brakes on. And I ran a whole, all the way home, all the way home. And he didn't, he didn't cross our path. Um, in terms of coming to the house again. The only thing is, as I've got older and, and, and the fact that I do the work that I do now, I realised that it wasn't just me breaking away because I was becoming physically stronger and petulant. These paedophiles have uh, sexual preference and I was probably getting too old for him anyway. I think the worst thing is because I went on then to play for Blackpool, I had to, I had to see him on a weekly basis um, because he was... He was uh, a scout for the club, so he was there every weekend. And, you know, one of the biggest regrets, and it remains the biggest regrets, I saw a child with him constantly, and I knew what was happening, and I didn't say anything. In fact, when he passed me, I said hello. And now when I think back, at 16 years of age, I could have prevented so many more children from going through it. You know, it hurts. But that's, that's the, the effect that an abuser can have on you that's longer term than just the period of time they abuse you, isn't it? Oh, God, dude. <laughs> to say when the abuse stops, it stops, it doesn't. I mean, you know, I say often, because I, I do a lot of work with the AFL now, and when I deliver, I say, do you know what? As horrendous as the abuse was, the impact it had on me in later life was far, over, far overreaching. Not just the impact it had on me, but the devastation that I heaped on the family. The, the the fact that I've you know I've got three kids. I mean my, my son's thirty four now and two girls. I've never even told them that I love them. It's just, I mean you can see now you know and I've, I've come forward and it's five years. But do you know I used to go missing for for days and weeks on end on drug fuel binges and and drink and you know I lost my wife in September you know um, and I'd been with her 33 years I never even got to tell her I loved her so when I tell you that the um, the impact it has not just on you on, on, on your actions with your loved ones your friends your colleagues those close to you it, it, it's devastating you know I suffered from, I mean, I was great when I was at a football club of wearing this mask and cloak of looking like I was enjoying every minute. I was enjoying the trappings of success. I was, God, you know, inside I was dying. I was absolutely dying. But it's what I, what I had to do to survive. Somehow I had to survive. And, and you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I'm sat here being able to say this. And Jeff, as you all know, we've lost some colleagues because. They couldn't hack it and they, 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 they took their own lives because of the impact they had. So, you know, in some ways, I, you know, I made it through to a certain extent, but, but, but my life, it's just been full of turmoil, you know, and, and I do, I, whether this is, is, is right, I, I do feel, feel so deeply for my loved ones because they, they've missed out on having a proper father. A father that should be able to to hold and cuddle his kids. 
should be at school for her open nights, should be at special birthdays and he's gone missing because he's, he's drunk or he's coked out of his head. Do you know? And I feel for the, the only thing that, the only glimmer of light was when I came forward, it, it gave my son and my two daughters just a bit of understanding of why dad was like he was because they had no idea. They, they you know, they'd done nothing wrong. And I think the only plus point uh, was, was that, that, that they sort of understood why, why, why dad wasn't and, and, and why a husband wasn't like, like, um, like everyone else. But they must be so proud now with what you've done since. I, yeah, I, I think so, Jeff, but, you know, I still struggle. I still struggle with, with showing emotion, showing, showing feelings. You know, I'd love to say to you that, you know, once you come forward, it's like switching mm. a light on and off and everything goes away. It doesn't, you know, everything is a day-to-day process of trying to manage the um, manage the thoughts, the suicidal thoughts, the depression. You know, I just learned to manage them better now. I don't go off and go drinking. I don't go off and take drugs. You know, all that is how I manage. You know, I had to get help on two occasions to, to, to quit drugs. And I've got coping mechanisms now that help me. Um, deal with it but it is easier I won't say it isn't easier but you know I'm fighting I'm fighting the 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 impact constantly did you hope that there would be that light switch when you came forward I don't know what I hoped for you know I was I was I was a little bit worried that I was opening a Pandora's box because I hadn't said anything and because I kept it what I thought locked away, even though I didn't sometimes realise it was manifesting itself in the, you know, the abuse of drugs and the drink and, and how I was with my family. I was more frightened that I'd opened the Pandora's box and I wouldn't be able to, to, to handle it, if you know what I mean. In terms of your, your own emotions and, and your own sort of experiences that you were revisiting something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost acceptance, you know, because... I'd put it that far to the or thought I had. I said it's the acceptance that it's happening and then reliving, like I said to you, why didn't I say something when I was 16? You know, the reasons behind that are quite quite simple is I didn't want coaches to think I was a problem player. I didn't want them to think, oh, do we need this? And then it would hamper my chances. And then when I got older, when I when I, you know, when I when it, I suppose we called it made it. You know, I'm sat next to people like Rush and Gaston and, and Lineker. It's embarrassing, Kevin. You know, you don't say, oh, by the way, when I was a, a 10-year-old, I, I was abused for four years. So you end up finding reasons not to say anything. And they're all myths because I know I spoke to my ex-manager, Sam Allison, when he found out about it. He said, I would have kicked him out of the club. We would have done something. But you, you get, you believe these myths that I won't make it or it'll hamper my chances. And, and you know, I do a lot of work around this now with, with, with football, uh, well, with a lot of organisations because we do, we, we create myths of why we don't disclose. And they are all myths because there are people that will help. And to go through, you know, 42 years without saying anything, I hope you don't think this me being conceited, but I, I played 32 times for Liverpool. Yeah. When I look back, I should have played 332. And I think if I said something when I was younger, 
I might have just achieved that. Whereby, what did I do? When I was at Liverpool, I was doing cocaine every day. You know, it was the best move. I went for two and a half mil, you know, I was coming back home to the north, west, and playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world. And what do I do? I decide to ruin our chances by going on drug fuel binges and drinks. And it remains a regret. I have, I say often, I have an FA Cup winner's medal in my house. And I have three England caps. I don't even have them on show, Kelly. Because when I look at them, they just represent heartache and pain. So they're just tucked away. You're so hard on yourself. How would you talk to yourself if you were one of the the kids, the, the adults who are survivors of sexual abuse that you work with now? Well, I, I encourage them. I, I, I say, you know, you look at my career stats behind, you know, playing at City, playing at Liverpool, playing at Tottenham, winning a cup final. I wished I could have enjoyed that. And I say to them, I'm going to give you some tools, hopefully, that'll help you on this journey and help you to enjoy it. And one of them tools are, if you've got an issue, no matter how minor or major that issue is, go and talk to somebody. There are support networks around. I say, because this experience can be one, one of the most joyous. You might not all make it, but the academies want you to look back with fondness and say, do you know what? When I was at Derby County's Academy, I had the best time. They want you to come into training with a smile on your face and think the only thing I am concentrating on today is the session in hand, is what we're doing. And if you have an issue and you talk about it, then you can do that. And I say it doesn't matter how minor. You know, we have, as you well know and have reported an awful lot, there's a lot of abuse that's going on now. You know, it's not just the sexual abuse that happened to me. We've got the racial abuse. You know, we have bullying. The impacts all of these have on individuals' lives, if people really, really knew, then I'm sure they'd think twice, you know. I know I'm, I'm, I'm stating this, but Caroline Flack, the abuse she got and took on social media, and then she takes her own life. I just don't get why people don't understand it, don't understand it at all. I think it's often a, a question of empathy, and, and that's something that you clearly have in huge amounts. And when, when I was asking about how you would... You would talk to to young people who who would have something that they wanted to talk about now, whether it was the sort of people at a later stage in their their life that were dealing with the the after effects. What what I was I was sort of wondering was if you you will know this in your head, but do you understand that it it wasn't your fault? Because I hear you blaming yourself for some of the things that that happened in your life as a consequence. I totally understand. Do you know what I say to, because I, I do, I receive a lot of messages privately since the documentary, it's, it's gone through the roof with people that have been abused and they say, thank you for coming forward. I've not said anything yet. And I, I encourage them. I say, please just do one thing. Speak to a loved one. Speak to a close friend. Speak to somebody. And I say to them, it'll be the start of your recovery, but don't expect too much. Don't expect too much too soon. It's just a start. And I, and that. That is what advice I give because obviously I'm not I'm not a psychotherapist and I, I wouldn't want to get in that field. But I just say I never said a word and and and, and by not speaking it just consumed my life. Uh, I now speak I'm speaking to you about it and you know what it, it, I do get upset especially when I talk about my family, Kelly. But uh, it is cathartic for me. I genuinely believe 
with the work that I'm doing within football, that it's making a difference to some of the lads. Because, do you know, I, I, I openly open up. I just say, I know you don't want to sit in and listen to a fat ex-footballer talking about safeguarding because it isn't a sexy subject. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you some tools to hopefully help you enjoy the experience and the journey that you're embarking on. And 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 I'd love, you know, I, I think academies, if they have kids coming in smiling, that all they're concentrating on is the job in hand, the session or whatever it is, they're going to end up with the best players because happy players make better players. There is no doubt of that. And if they're carrying a burden, it isn't their burden to carry. We have support networks, you know, safeguarding offices. The coaches have to do safeguarding courses now. So there are people that they can speak to despite or whatever the uh, the issue might be. I'm exactly the same age as you, Paul, 1964. And I found myself at Crew at the age of 19, coming into the game a little bit later. But it's only later that I found out that I was at the club when Barry Bernal was there and Steve Walters, Andy Woodward and various other names were there. And... They reached out to me because I used to be their captain in many respects. Yeah. Uh, just before they went live with what they wanted to get out there, their stories. And I had the privilege to sit with them the day before they went into the Victoria Derbyshire interview. And it's a night I'll never forget because they were just pouring their hearts out and about their obviously experience with Barry Bernal. But it was like it would, they, would, they turned into boys again. Yeah, you know they turned it, and they they were so open, and I think you could see it was helping them. But I think, like you say, it, it it's just a start, isn't it? But again, what what you yeah. guys are doing is safeguarding the future. And I think, is there anything that you can do to even before the abuse starts, any any sort of sort of notice that there's somebody sort of grooming? Is there any sort of Warning signs. There's so many signs, Jeff. Um, you'll see all of a sudden getting gifts that they wouldn't normally get from somebody outside of the father or the, or the family. A change in demeanour, going from happy to 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 all of a sudden being a bit withdrawn. They talk in in a different language, you know, sexually for their age. You know, they may be secretive. You know, all of a sudden not telling you your things. So the, the, there are a lot of signs that you can pick up on early to hopefully stop it because once it gets into the abuse side of it, it very rarely gets stopped. So you have to be, and children, children are very, very clever. Despite what we think, when something's happening, they'll test you and they'll test your trust. And they will talk as, they'll talk in a third person, Jeff, and say, a friend of mine, I think something's, something's happening or, you know, it's not quite right. And they're testing that, you as a, an adult, to see whether you're going to say anything. And they're there just at the point of disclosing. So you have to understand all them signs to be able to, to report something or to, to, to be concerned about something. But, yeah, we have to be open as, as we are now and talk about it. It's an uncomfortable subject, yeah. but it needs to be uncomfortable. Yeah. No kids understand it. You know, they need to be, it needs to be spoken in the open. And now with 2016 in November and then the subsequent documentary, the inquiry, 
all these things are keeping it at the forefront and we need we need to make sure that that continues to be at the forefront because these people are still out there jeff they they just the way in which now which is frightening the way in which they predate on the on the, on the children through social media they don't even have to groom anymore they just pretend to be a peer of the same age within six weeks there's contact and there's there's abuse happening so we need to be never to be complacent we need to make sure that the harder they work to to access our children or or abusive people in general the harder they're trying because what they recognize is they recognize organizations that don't have the procedures and policies in place they know that they're not there they infiltrate them and then they're able to abuse and that's any 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 sort of abuse so we just have to never never rest on our laurels and which is why do you know I do the work that I do because I don't want I don't want people to forget what happened I, do you know what Jeff I think in 20 years if I woke up and switched the tally on and I seen a glutton of individuals from any organization pouring their hearts out like we did saying what happened to them I I'd feel that I hadn't done my job I'd feel that I you know what I what I set out to do when I came forward which was to make change which was to help people I'd feel that I hadn't done my job so for me I will and I'm dedicating uh, the rest of my life to 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 work in this field in whatever capacity I know I wasn't the 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 most famous player but I have a platform that I can use to hopefully spread that word and I, and I intend to use it uh, where possible and and that's not just in football I mean I've I've I'm recently uh, developing a safeguarding awareness course with with a company but with my experience as a survivor because I think I don't think you know I see a lot of courses out there that are they're far too easy you know the courses are multiple choice and if you get one wrong you just go back and pick another one I want it to be robust I want them to retain the information so I'm 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 in the process of developing a course that will have the involvement of a survivor that's been through it that knows what it's like to be there and knows the the signs the symptoms and what to look out for Paul I was I was going to ask you about the the safeguarding measures because clearly that they're in place so that adults can spot this behavior in in other other adults because it's our responsibility as adults to make sure that that children are safe is it difficult to get the line right with with children between showing them what the signs might be that they can look out for and and almost making them feel like it's or not wanting to make it feel like like it's their fault or they have a re- responsibility there because it's it's not theirs it's it's ours as adults yeah and uh, do you know what football in particular the professional game Kelly have, have made giant strides in in terms of safeguarding children and to be honest with you it's not just safeguarding children that we've got to be aware of i mean the coaches and the staff at clubs need to know that they're being safeguarded as well and the the reasons they put these procedures in place are to safeguard them as well because i i know of coaches that have been accused of 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 doing something found completely not guilty but they can't get a job in the game because mud sticks so coaches that are and we still have them resistant against safeguarding because they think it's just policies and procedures they need to embrace it because it's looking after them also but we also need children as you quite rightly we need them to understand that it's not their fault 
We need them to, to believe that speaking up is not going to harm them on the journey that they're on. Because, you know, these are the two, the two biggest, and certainly in sport, this is how these, these individuals can predate on, on youngsters because they, they sell them a dream. They say, they're gonna, we're going to make you a star. We'll make you a star. And therefore, the child then accepts the abuse for what they've always wanted to be. And, and do you know, the, there's so much work going on around all these areas, which, which is pleasing. The only thing I will say, and Jeff, you and I know that when we started playing, it was called Sunday League Football. Grassroots level is concerning because some of these grassroots football clubs have upwards of 2,000 kids, girls and boys uh, on the books. They have maybe one or two safeguarding offices, which is these people are generally working, the volunteers. And therefore, because whatever anybody says, it was grassroots football where where I was uh, sort of groomed and where my abuser uh, was able to abuse me from. And, And that's where I think more work, we need to do more work. And I don't know how we'll finance this uh, because grassroots clubs obviously will say that they haven't got the money, but whether it be through the government, be through the, the, the football itself because of the money it's generating, but we need to be very careful on the, the grassroots side of it. You've, you've been involved in, in research which shows that this is not a small problem by any stretch of the imagination. It certainly isn't in terms of, of, of magnitude and, and of the horror behind it, but in terms of numbers, it's probably bigger than people think as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, later on I'm speaking to, because I've, I've aligned myself with Childline in SPCC, and, and uh, why I should be shocked, I don't know. But, you know, they gave me just one stat. I had a call with them on Monday. They gave me one stat that one in 20 children in a classroom is being sexually abused throughout the country. And that's not just in sport, obviously. One in 20 in every classroom is being... Now, we know classroom sizes are bigger than 20 in some cases, but they're the statistics from the NSPCC. Now, that if that doesn't frighten anyone, I don't know what would. And that's only sexual abuse, by the way. And yeah, that's not including the other types of abuse that those children could be, could be going through. So, you know, there is still still work to be done. We still need to, and like I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to give up spreading the word, trying to educate, trying to, to help people. If they, I mean, I, you know, I speak to a lot of people, like I say, that have been abused. I'm not going to stop helping them. I talk to them. I just, I just talk to them. And, you know, I don't, we don't always talk about the abuse. You know, it isn't just, it's just about talking, just about feeling. Do you know what you lose? You lose all trust when you've been abused. You, you don't trust anyone. You know, I'm talking in terms of my family as well. The reason why I didn't get close is, I, you know, I used to think it when I prayed for Tottenham, and, and I haven't said this before, my wife was living in Blackpool. I used to drive home and then it'd take five or six hours. And I, I used to practice in the car saying, you look beautiful, I love you. I'd get back and say, have you put weight on? I'd say something negative because I couldn't bring myself to show any affection. And, it, it, you know, it kills you. It really does. You get stripped of everything when you're abused. It, 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 you know, right to the bare bone. It, it is. It, it, it's very difficult. But, uh, 
like I say, the, talking like this, doing the sessions that I do, it's cathartic for me. Writing the book was cathartic. I never was going to write a book because, again, I didn't think that my football and exploits warranted an autobiography. But when I came forward, I had a story to tell. I had, and, and, and my book's about a 10-year-old's journey through the abuse, what the effects the abuse had on his career, on his you know, marriage and family life. And it has excerpts in from a family also saying about how it affected them. And that, that, that was the reason that I wanted to write the book, so that it would help other people that I know have been through it and can't, for whatever reason, speak up. Do you know why you found it so hard to tell your wife and your children that you love them? Because you, you don't trust anyone. Once, once you've been abused, there's a lack of trust with anyone. It doesn't matter who it is. And you feared that something might be said. It, 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 it's so difficult to explain, but you just, you know, you think it in your head. You think of the things that you want to say, but you, they just don't come out of your mouth. They don't come out of your mouth. And, and do you know, I, I get drunk sometimes and may show affection, but it, it was either drunk or drugs where I could say something. But that wasn't, that's not real life. That isn't when I'm I'm sober and I'm stood there. And Who doesn't want to say to the wife, you're beautiful. I love you so much. Yeah, yeah. That was taken from me because of uh, the abuse that I endured as a child. You don't want to make yourself vulnerable. Mm. And that's, you're exactly right. That vulnerability. In terms of the, the work that you do now and the understanding that you have with the, the people that you work with, you're clearly helping them and you're making a huge difference in their life. Does it make a difference in, in your life? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, because I feel like, you know, after such a long time, I'm able to do something that I wished I could have done when I was that 16-year-old walking past my abuser, knowing that the lad that he was with was being abused on a daily basis. You know, now I feel that I can help others, and it helps me. It helps me. You know, I still have my bad days, um, but I manage them an awful lot better now, Kelly. And that's that's what I think. And I, I do say this, you know, and I, I talk about, please talk to somebody, and it's the start of the recovery. I say to them, it's not an overnight change, but you'll learn to manage your demons a lot better once you're able to talk about it. And especially if you can talk about it to, to somebody who's very close to you, a loved one, as I say, or, or a close friend, even a doctor. You know, if, they, if, if you see with me, I'd have found it very difficult to tell a doctor, you know, and that sounds stupid because I went and told the nation in a newspaper, but I, do you know, a one-on-one, I'd, I'd still find it very difficult. You think that's a generation thing? Possibly. I mean, you know that children were seen and not heard when we were younger, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, speak when you're spoken to. But I also think a lot of it was brushed under the carpet. There were there, there were definitely, you know, it's not natural for a, for a boy to be with anyone other than his father or family 24-7 like I was. I don't understand how, how, how that wouldn't be seen to be a bit odd but they were so convincing and people didn't want to talk about abuse you know most of the abuse happens in the familiar home you know I know that we had this in 2016 with footballers but most of it happens at home children again will 
continue to be abused because what happens is the authorities will take that child out of that setting and then he or she is not with the brothers, not with uh, whoever in the family that isn't abusing them. So they retract the statement because they want to go back and be with the family. Now, the authorities should be taking the individual away, but that's not how it works. 2% of, of, of cases that are reported go to, go to uh, court because children retract the statement. It's shocking, I mean. It's completely shocking. It's why what you're, you're doing, I think, is, is so important in, in raising awareness of, the, of how widespread the, the problem is, but also in terms of historic cases, in terms of ongoing cases, and giving people that um, platform and that security to, to know that if they speak, that they will be heard and, and they will be believed. I wonder if there's a, a part of what you're giving them that you wish you'd had. Oh, totally, totally. And, you know, I, I go back to, you know, different stages. If I'd have only said something, how I would have been able to, to enjoy my career. I, I think I said on the documentary that, you know, I got chosen to, to, for the England squad. I joined and I was absolutely paralytic. We joined on a Sunday. Uh, joined the, the squad my first time I'm with the England squad and I turn up absolutely paralytic I mean when I was well however young since I could remember I could walk if somebody had said to me you'll play for England one day I, 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 that would have been my biggest dream I turned up to the first squad that I was involved with absolutely paralytic Kelly. Well, you probably could hide as well in that time as well, Paul, because there was a drinking culture in the game, wasn't there? Yeah, there certainly was. There certainly was. But for me, it was all about numbing the pain. You know, I, I have to say when I had the, the first line of cocaine, I don't blame anyone for my actions. You know, nobody pushed my head down and forced me to take that cocaine. But the first time I took it, I didn't have a, a care in the world. All of a sudden, the demons had gone. But obviously, it lasts for a short time. Then you want more and more. Then when you uh, stop, you, the come down is so bad, you want to end up, you know, you're thinking of suicide, you're thinking of ending it all. So it becomes a perpetual thing because you want to get back up there to forgetting. And the fact that there was a, a drinking culture probably helped me. It probably helped me because, because of the way the game was. But um, for me, it was all about numbing the, the pain, numbing the dark thoughts, numbing, you know, trying to, to get away from, from, from actually real life, how, how I felt and what it was. Because you came to Wolverhampton Wonders when I was there and we, we shared a night out with Gaza. And for me, you was a, an alpha male. You know, watching you doing what you do now is just a great example that everybody's vulnerable to this and, and how much... You've mentioned before how clever paedophiles are, but how clever kids are and how people are. Like, you, you've, you've hidden this for years. But to me, you was a guy, a normal guy, who was at the top of his game, or coming down a little bit at Wolves. But, um, yeah, it was just, you'd never guess. So what you're doing now is just extraordinary. And I think, like you say, just keep doing it because you are going to save lives for sure. I think that exactly what you say, Jeff, there is that, you know, when before lockdown, I was visiting the academies and being able to do it face to face. And of course, 
when you go to different clubs, you come across players that you played with, like we played with over the years, and you know you deliver your session. and And one of the questions that come, especially if it's one of the players that was in my era and that played with, they always go, "Stewie, we'd have never thought it'd have been you. We never thought of you know you'd have asked us to guess what you were like on the pitch, what you were like off the pitch. We would never." have even thought for one minute that, that that it would happen to you. And this is what I say. You know, people think that it's the weak and vulnerable, Jeff, that, that these people target. It, it isn't at all. You know, I was none of the above. So anyone, anyone out there is, is you know, is, it can be in danger. It, it, it doesn't work on class. It doesn't work on wealth. It's, it's how these people can manipulate more than anything. Do you think football's in a better place? I do think football's in a better place. The professional game, it's like I said, you know, the grassroots level side of it still worries me because you have volunteers that are doing the job and they've got full-time jobs of their own and it's not their fault. And in some cases, they're bullied into doing it because they're the one that's at the club most of the time. How do we get around that? You know, it's a money thing, you know, should it be? I mean, certainly when you're talking about clubs having 2,000 plus youngsters on the books you know there should be a full-time job there for for somebody I mean I was a bit disappointed in the um, in the FA review where you know anyone below the championship only has to do it part-time what I don't understand is as soon as clubs are financially strapped the first people that they look at to cut is the safeguarding side of it the reason being it's a direct cost you know everybody else is bringing money in safeguarding is money going out. What they don't understand is, in years to come, what they're saving is being sued, first and foremost. But they're also putting a message out there that children are not that important. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, 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 you only have to do it part-time. So I was disappointed, I think. That was one of, one of many things I was disappointed when I, when I read the review. Polly, are you proud of the work you do now? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. If I'm, if I'm honest, Kelly, and and I, and I really enjoy it. You know, when I when I did come forward, there was there was two reasons. It was in the hope that I could help other people that have either been through it or or prevent it, and and it was hopefully for my family to understand me a little bit better instead of, you know, all all that they'd been through. It was in the hope that they could help. I often, you know, I often tell my story. At the beginning, people wanted me to just tell my my story, my survivor's story, which is, you know, obviously impactful. But I, I started to, to then think, am I really educating here? You know, I know people pity me. I know people feel sorry for me. I don't want that. What I want to do is, yeah, I will use my story, but I also go on to try and educate them so that they're getting something from the sessions so that when they go away, I say, if you just take two things uh, away from this session, then I'm happy with that. You know, I'm doing my job. And 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 now I'm in that place where I'm, I'm able to use the fact that I'm a survivor, use my story, but also educate around my story. And I know by telling my story, and I often, I don't start with it, but it, it's very early on. The reason I do it is because people set up and listen straight away. You know, there have been many times I've been on courses when I was taking the courses myself and people had to be on the courses and they'd be messing on the phone or they were there because the boss had made them go to the course. 
I stand up in a room, tell my story, and nobody looks at the phone. You can hear a pin drop. It then gives me that opportunity to educate. Once I know I've got the room, I can then educate. And that's the, that's the thing around the story, the survivor's story, is that I can grab the room. And as a survivor, with everything that you go through every day in terms of, of still dealing and, and living with that, how is it for you to, to feel proud of yourself, to feel proud of, of what you're doing now? <laughs> I don't know whether I feel proud of myself, Kelly, um, to be honest. And, and, and I'd hate to think that I was, I was one of them people that was full of his own importance. I'm not. Uh, I, do you know what? My, my only wish is that I can continue to do the work that the, the football league will keep me involved that I can go because I say I say to the lads, look, I've been where you are. I said it might have been in in the early eighties, nineties, but I know I know what it's like to be an apprentice. I know the challenges. So what I want to do is make sure that all you're thinking about are them challenges of of, of trying to strive to be the best player you can be. And I want to take away any of the other worries that you might have. And I get you know I'm pleased when I get the good feedback uh, which comes through that pleasing me but it's very hard as an individual to feel proud proud of of, of myself you know I, st- I still struggle with with you know my kids would tell you I can't even take compliments Kelly you know I, 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 I get shy and I get embarrassed and um, but I just I just enjoy the work that I do and and in truth it gives me a little bit have a connection back to football. I feel like I'm giving something back. You know, when I talked about Liverpool and they, they spent two and a half million on me and, and, and all they bought was a cokehead. Now I feel that I'm giving something back to football by doing this. And, you know, it gives me a bit of solace, that Kelly. Well, it is incredibly important what, what you're doing. And I know you don't like compliments, but you should be proud of yourself. <laughs> Paul, thanks so much for your time today. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Moment, brought to you by The Athletic. If you were affected by anything you heard in today's episode and would like to speak to someone in confidence, you can call The Samaritans for free, anytime, day or night, on 116 123.